You're listening to episode 424 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Greetings from uh, another week has gone by, and, and you're on the road again, recording in closets. I am on the road again. I've gone back in the closet because at, uh, I'm at an Airbnb, which happened to have an unused, very large walk-in closet. Well, large from the closet standpoint, but just a perfect size for a recording studio. So we've we've hung the <laughs> the blankets and the and the bedspreads and stuffed it with pillows and hopefully it sounds not too bad. This time I think we should get you Max to post a, your photo of your mobile recording studio for everyone to see for the wet show notes. All right, we'll try to do that. <laughs> but we've got some good topics. We've got Cops flying BV loss, military drones with facial recognition, a lethal drone designed in Australia, because everything in Australia is going to kill you, the Lilium jet in eVertol, moving air quietly, and another personal eVertol. So I guess we should get started, Max, so you can get back to your vacation. Thank you, David. Let's get started. Our first story comes from technologyreview.com. Welcome to Chula Vista, where police drones respond to 9-11 calls. The Chula Vista, California Police Department operates 29 drones. The program runs 10 hours a day, seven days a week, using four launch sites, and officers routinely request aerial reconnaissance. This is a large-scope operation, Max, for a, for a local police force. It sure is. 29 drones. I mean, that's pretty pretty significant. And it's interesting how they describe that the officers do oftentimes ask for the, uh, the drones to be available uh, for different things that they're, that they're doing. And uh, the article, though, points out that Chula Vista isn't the only police department operating drones. They say that more than 1,500 U.S. police departments are using drones these days. But they're mostly using them for search and rescue, document crime scenes, and chase suspects. Um, it, it is kind of funny, though, the image of calling in backup and having a little quadcopter come along <laughs> to help you. And, of course, in the past, in the good old days, I guess, in the old days, um, all of these were within visual line of sight, which, of course, limits the number of circumstances when the law enforcement can use the drones. But, of course, the FAA uh, began a process of issuing waivers that allow BV loss flights. And Chula Vista, interestingly enough, was the first to receive that kind of a waiver. But now about 225 police departments have those waivers to operate BV loss. And Matt Sloan, who's been on our show, which is the founder of Skyfire Consulting, says, quote, this is a rapidly escalating. Police departments are steadily growing their budgets for this technology. I think we'll see autonomous deployment within two or three years. At this time, there's no data at this time that proves that drones can be used for loss enforcement reduce crime. But um, 29 drones and a seven-day-a-week, 10-hour operation, that's a big operation, Max. It's, it's kind of quietly sort of crept up to us. And the article is, it's an interesting article in that it, it kind of takes a little bit of a pivot from describing 
the number of police departments, the uses and all of that to the notion that, well, privacy and civil liberty groups are starting to take notice. And sometimes they worry about this uh, expansion of police capability. We have these drones. There are license plate readers that some departments have. There are networks of fixed cameras, real-time command centers that uh, go through the video evidence. And so there is some degree of concern that, you know, the surveillance society is kind of taking hold a little bit more than some people would like. Uh, but I don't think the article really takes a stand one way or the other. I think it's it's just worthy of note that it's not all <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, as someone we know would say, but that this uh, digital dragnet, they call it, could really expand the surveillance capabilities of law enforcement in a way that we may not like a lot. And, and of course, privacy has always been an underlying feature of the drone, the drone industry um, and over policing, you know, any tool can be abused. Right? Sure. A tool is just a tool. It just depends upon how you use it. But it is kind of seeing interesting seeing a robust drone force that is supplementing um, police patrols, et cetera, you know, and it would be interesting to note, what the majority of the responses are from Chula Vista for for drones. Is it just for surveillance? Is it for accident observation or something? So I would just I would love to know what the breakdown of the missions are. And are they going to be subject to um changes in their equipment if if our legal aspects like the DJI bans go into effect, you know, because 29, 29 drones is a lot of purchase. Yeah, it's a big investment for sure. Not only a monetary investment in the, the hardware, the drones, but uh, also I imagine in the training and, you know, all that, all that goes with it. So yeah, I think uh, police departments are realizing, law enforcement in general is realizing, like you say, David, it's a tool and what a powerful tool it can be. Uh, just need to be aware of uh, concerns that some people have and uh, try to address those up front. I think that uh, helps uh, helps smooth the transition process to uh, kind of a different world. Well, let's continue with this theme of observation. This was from vice.com. U.S. military signs contract to put facial recognition on drones. Uh, and there's, there's another article on from popularmechanics.com. The Air Force drones can now recognize faces. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're talking about SAFER or S-A-F-R. Yeah, this is something that the uh, United States Air Force is planning to deploy, and it comes from a company called Real Networks LLC, and it's facial recognition technology for drones. And as you mentioned, this uh, safer technology, the Air Force is looking to at least initially implement this on small drones used for special operations uh, missions. And Real Network says safer, safer Scan is the full-featured, intelligent, biometric, access-controlled edge solution. And the Air Force has paid Real Network $729,056 for SAFER. 
And the contract says, quote, the Air Force will adapt the safer facial recognition platform for development as an autonomous SUAS for special ops, intelligence, surveillance, and target acquisition, and other expeditionary use cases. So basically, they want the spec ops people to use them first, which usually it would be used probably to identify and target high-value targets. Yeah, I would think so. And it's worth noting that real networks, uh, it sounds like they're not in the drone business. They're in the software business, in the facial recognition uh, business. Uh, they're not uh, planning to create the hardware, the drones, to go along with this. Um, in fact, the Air Force contract also notes that the safer software will have to be integrated with the hardware and software stack of the small drones, including its onboard compute, communication systems, and remote controller software to enable operation in disconnected, intermittent, and limited communications settings, support actionable insight for remote human operators, and open the opportunity for real-time autonomous response by the robot. So, Sounds like it's not a turnkey solution. It is a uh, technology that the Air Force has purchased, and it sounds to me like the Air Force then is got the task of integrating it with whatever drones that they uh, they plan on using safer with. Just as a side note, folks, when my co-host mentioned disconnected, intermittent, and limited communication settings, I thought that was like an average night on podcasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the vagaries of the internet. So we'll we'll stick with the military story, this one from Down Under. I'm sure we'll hear more about this from our team down in Australia, who we're happy to have back as a podcast. If you haven't listened to Grant and Steve on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast, definitely um, they've been friends for us for years now, um, and they had taken a hiatus from podcasting. Um, but they've been working at the Avalon Air Show, so definitely take a chance and take some time and listen to Plane Crazy Down Under. But this is from abc.net.au, and this is about the BAE Strex, which is the oddest-looking thing I could Im- I've ever seen. Avalon, of course, is a big show in Australia, and uh, they're expecting this year for the 2023 edition almost 800 companies to take part. Organizers say this is going to be the show's uh, largest ever event. But this drone, this uh, VTOL, was unveiled at Avalon. Uh, BAE Systems Australia unveiled it. And it is uh, it's an interesting aircraft. It's a hybrid tandem wing. They call it a multi-domain and multi-role UAS. It can be used for air-to-ground strike for persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, ISR, and even as a loyal wingman for military helicopters. Um, So basically, this looks like you took a biplane and stuck the wings on a 45-degree angle from the ground with propellers on the end of it. Uh, It's definitely unique. Um, It can carry up to 160-kilogram payload over 800 kilometers, it's capable currently of carrying a variety of munitions, and it has a collapsed footprint of only 2.6 by 4.5 meters, which is roughly 8.5 by 15 feet, and it doesn't need an airfield. 
So it's a vertical takeoff and landing, but basically once in the air, it uh, flies horizontally. So the propellers are, um, so it, 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 it transitions in, in flight once it takes off. But Max, I did think it was interesting that um, it's not a mission we've talked about before, which is a loyal wingman for helicopters. Yes. Which is a completely different nom- domain than, say, a loyal wingman. Unlike BAE's Ghost Bat, which it, they announced th- at the last Avalon, which is a loyal wingman for uh, jet aircraft, jet fighters, and, and um, military aircraft, we haven't really ever seen a role for support of helicopters, which is really kind of a unique and and it, it's a very dynamic um, environment for a drone to work in. That was new to me. It got me thinking about the support missions that a loyal wingman could do uh, or could perform for a helicopter. So, yeah, a lot of possibilities there. So we got some eVirtual stories. This one comes from another friend of the show, um, Mary Kirby's Runway Girl Network. Lilium sees premium service entry for Lilium Jet eVirtal. So the V part of Virtal takes a lot of energy, and the eVirtal range is limited because of the energy requirement. Most eVirtal designs have lots of aerodynamic drag. So what's Lilium doing to compensate for this, Max? They're doing a number of things uh, to address those typical issues with eVirtals. For one, um, the... Aircraft has a wing and a and a canard, which gives it a good lift to drag ratio, uh, and the power requirements are, are very low at cruise speed. But the sort of the magic, the key to it is that power for both vertical and horizontal flight come from a whole large number of small electric motors pushing air through ducts, and the ducts have variable nozzles. The electric power comes from 330 watt-hours per kilogram density batteries, and each motor weighs around 4 kilograms and develops 100 kilowatts of power. But where is this going to enter? It's going to enter in the premium sector, which means it's going to start off with, and this is why um, Runway Girl Network is involved, because they like doing, in, they talk about interiors and cabin classes, etc. So, it's going to start off as a high-end taxi before it filters down to the rest of us. So it's going to, it's an interesting way that they're targeting the higher-value market. It's, in some ways, maybe reminiscent of the Tesla model, right? When Tesla first introduced its early uh, automobiles variants, uh, they were sold as, as premium vehicles, and that brought in the revenue that helped build the, the volume and lower manufacturing costs. And so perhaps Lilium is kind of taking the, the same approach. You know, sell, sell to the high-end guys first at a premium price, offer a premium product. And that helps, helps offset the development costs and helps build the, the volume, which reduces manufacturing costs, so that ultimately you lower the unit cost and make it available to a, you know, at lower price points to a broader a broader audience. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It sounds like a, you know, a proper business model for something new and different and exciting like the Lilium. There is a reason why they call it the bleeding edge of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you pay for it, you pay for it up front. And, you know, when 
premium people who purchase these or are using them as air taxis, um, they know to expect that there probably will be some bugs because they're getting the top of the line early adopters. So it's a very interesting concept. It's a very pretty aircraft, unlike the um, previous SUAS we've talked about, but the Lilium is definitely a sleek aircraft looking evertol which is a lot of times they're not looking they don't look that way um it looks a bit reminiscent of bert uh rutan's aircraft with the ford canard and um the wingtip so it's a very it's kind of a conventional aircraft but not quite yes whisperjet sets to reveal details about its ultra quiet propulsion system this was from futureflight.arrow. So, Max, Whisper Arrow, what, do you, what are they doing? So they have been working on quiet propulsion technology for a couple of years, about two years. And how, how quiet is quieter? Well, they're talking about around 20 dB quieter. And uh, this is something that would be uh, applicable for drones and electric fixed-wing aircraft. But at the same time, the company, Whisper Arrow, hasn't said anything really about what this is exactly. Uh, I even went to the company's webpage, which is just simply whisper.aero, and they have a tagline there. It says, harnessing the power of more air cleanly, efficiently, and quietly than ever before. And the webpage invites you to subscribe. There's a link to a page that describes open positions the only other information of any sort on their webpage currently, as we look at it today, is that it mentions prior experience from Uber Elevate, NASA, and Northrop Grumman. But we don't really know what they're talking about here. Yeah, and Whisperer will review new details about its propulsors the end of March or early April, and they supposedly have built a 55-pound demonstrator drone to test the concept. And the company says that they're planning on offering different propulsion system models with different power output. And uh, this, is, this is quite interesting, I think, David. They say that the technology they've developed could be used for things other than aviation-related, things like, well, leaf blowers or HVAC systems or stovetop fans, even bathroom fans. All those, of course, of course tend to be kind of noisy. But the uh, chief operating officer in this article really summed it up, I think, pretty well in terms of what little we know so far. He said, we're in the business of moving air. All right. Well, we'll see. Not a lot of hot air, we hope. Yeah, not a lot of hot air. So we don't know. We can't tell you anything about this because we don't know, and apparently no one else does either. We're going to leave it as the to-be-continued category absolutely okay is there a one seat flying saucer the future of flight this is from freethink.com ziva aero designs and builds electrical vertol vehicles the company's flagship product is the argon based on a pre-existing airframe this is wild yeah this is about their zero evtol now, you could call this a personal flying machine. So it's got the capacity to hold one person, 
who, of course, is the pilot as well as the passenger. And when you launch this thing, I guess you kind of walk into it. You're standing upright, and that's followed by the vertical part of the flight. But after the transition to horizontal flight, boy, the flying position uh, is, is kind of unique here. You're lying on your stomach like you would be going down a toboggan or a, a sled with these eight rotors surrounding you. Um, the transition from um, launch to forward flight, I think, would be really would would be kind of make sense. The other way, though, I think is going to be really interesting. Landing backwards has never been a strong point for any vertical takeoff and landing vehicle where the pilot has been sitting um, either standing up or sitting forward or backwards. So if you look at the the Lockheed Salmon or the um, Convair Pogo, they were not aircraft that were easy to land. I can't imagine this will be any easier. So they've tested a one-eighth scale model. So that's pretty small. Uh, and in fact, there's a video of that that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, it gives you kind of a feel for what this is like. We'll also have a, a line drawing, a diagram uh, of, of what this looks like with an operator lying prone in this, uh, in this device. Um, they say that they have tests underway with a tethered full-scale prototype. And their their timeline is I don't know is, is awfully aggressive. They're saying that the prototype should be ready for remote controlled flights within a month, and that tests with a pilot could take place in three to six months. So their their plan is uh, pretty near term, David. Uh, I I don't know if their development is far enough along to support that. Uh, you'd think. Um, you know, you'd have to be pretty close to having it nailed down if you're going to be testing it with a pilot in the next three to six months. Yeah, it's it's definitely a unique vehicle. Um, I think the answer is this is going to be one of those, uh, if you are a adrenaline junkie, this is going to be the um, ride for you. But I'm not sure the rest of the world is going to get comfortable with commuting to work this way. Yeah, if you like fast, high RPM motorcycles, this is probably something that would interest you. Now, um, one thing that the company has on their website is a timeline for eVTOL adoption. And they're, they're making the point that, uh, you know, we're in a transition to eVTOL, uh, a, a worldwide phenomenon, and they believe, they say it will happen much quicker than people are anticipating. And they offer up some, well, a forecast, some, some dates. They're talking about air taxi service beginning in 2025, starting with selected metropolitan areas. Um, urban traffic management is operational and proven by that point. Well, that's 2025 is only a couple of years off. Uh, they say that by 2030... Uh, urban air mobility, UAM, will be ubiquitous, um, spreading to other cities around the world. By 2035, we should see personal eVTOL ownership. 
And by 2040, customer-owned eVTOLs become the norm. So, uh, you know, aggressive timeline. We can hope, you know, we, we could hope. But, Max, I guess when I was thinking about this reading, seeing that timeline, compared to adoption for, like, drone delivery, the eVertol seems like it's moving, like, light speed compared to drone transport. And so it does seem to have a faster pace, I think maybe because it's sort of more of a conventional idea and it's a lot of it's manned, you know, so you're not dealing with the whole remote pilot issue, but it's not unfeasible. It's just wonder what roadblocks the FAA is going to put up between now and then. Yeah. And with, I mean, the, number of companies who have ideas, have concepts in different stages of migrating from concept to development to production. There are lots of opportunities for mishaps to show up. There are lots of opportunities, because of the numbers, opportunities for you know, unsafe situations to present themselves. And when you're talking about flying objects around, uh, the consequences are, are are usually dramatic. So I guess what I'm saying or what I'm thinking is that these kinds of safety concerns really do impact the, uh, the timeline, the rollout, the successful uh, integration of these things into our lives. And... I don't know. There are just so many opportunities for uh, for things to happen that slow things down or that prevent things from even moving forward because of the complexities of ensuring the safety. Um, but, you know, we, we have a lot of dreamers uh, who uh, have created startups and at least for the time being received enough funding to keep them optimistic and moving forward. Uh, but... Uh, the industry as a whole, I, it may be overly optimistic in terms of what's going to get accomplished by when. But I'm trying not to be a pessimist because I think this, you know, this technology is exciting stuff. But, you know, the realities may temper some people's hopes for the future. Yeah, I was going to say damper, but tamper works too. It, yeah, so, Well, Max, I think that wraps it up. I, I think you should come out of the closet now and, and spend time... <laughs> Um, I know you, I know you have some editing to do, so I think we're going to wrap, call this show, um, done. And of course you can follow us on social media on LinkedIn. Max and I are there, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, the UAV Um, if you can join our Slack listener team, you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAV um, and of course, I, I turn you over to my co-host on where to find the show notes. Of course, uh, just look for us at the UAVdigest.com. We'll have show notes for this and every episode, links to the stories, uh, oftentimes videos, uh, photos of the drones that we talk about, all of that stuff at the UAVdigest.com. So with that, I'm going to say until next week, this is David. And this is Max. Thanks for listening.